This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. From MPB Think Radio, you're listening to Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today we're going to talk about a topic that we frequently discuss on the show, bird migration. With the autumn equinox, the first day of fall just around the corner, the fall migration of small land birds and some other birds as well continues in earnest. Today, we're going to welcome back our buddy, biologist Joe McGee. He'll let us know what birds we can see around the state at this time of year. Also, as always, Dr. Majors here, ready for your pet questions. You can email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. And if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursdays, always like to remind you that it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. So I believe that Libby's still out in the Pacific Northwest. We're having a little bit of trouble connecting with her, but hopefully she'll join us before the show is over. So, Dr. Major, let's... Oh, okay. We just got Libby, but let's uh, talk to Dr. Major for a few minutes as well. Uh, so, Dr. Major, um, as people get older, we know we've got to pay special extra attention to our health, uh, like maybe specific exams and tests, that sort of thing. Uh, does the same thing apply to our pets? So, as our dogs and cats and pets get older, what do we need to think about? It's a great question. <clears throat> and, of course, as people get older, uh, usually they realize that they they have to uh, do some what shall I say, regular physical exams and maybe even blood work and this sort of thing. With our dogs and cats, we like to establish some baselines somewhere, usually in the 8 to 10-year range, just to be sure. And baseline, I mean blood work, checking kidneys, liver, uh, pancreas, this sort of thing. Um, And also what we would call a geriatric exam. In those older, uh, and it depends on the breed, what you would say is geriatric. But uh, that is important just to be able to stay on track. And one of the biggest problems that we see is uh, the problem of dental, dental hygiene, dental care. And as dogs get older, a lot of times they have some severe uh, dental issues. So that's one thing we really need to do in a regular exam just to be sure where we are. And I would think, you know, that all of us know about it's a good idea to have a, a, an annual exam, a visit to the vet to see how your pets are doing. But I would imagine as our pets get older, maybe that yearly visit becomes more important so that you can kind of compare and contrast uh, as the pet gets older. Absolutely. And uh, vaccinations become less important. Uh, they're still important, but uh, when I say baseline, I'm thinking in terms of urinalysis, blood work, and just really a, an exam based on uh, these pets getting older and uh, listening to the owner, especially as far as what might be going on. So this, this is real important. All right, I think we do have Libby on the line now. So, uh, Libby, um, before you give us your report from the latest up there in the Pacific Northwest, uh, you've got an event this week coming up that deals with the Pearl River I know that you wanted to talk about. 
Oh, yeah, and I think Joe will talk about it a little more with you, but for sure, this is the cleanup on the Pearl River that's really so important for the whole community. If we want to enjoy the the river during uh, the fall, which is a really good time to be out there with your kayaks or canoes or just on the sandbars picnicking, however you want to get out there, lots of fishing along the Pearl, then it's a good idea for everybody to get together, and this is the time of year that um, the river keepers, Pearl River keepers, organize this every year and do a fantastic job of picking tons of trash out of the river. So if you would like to volunteer, and I think Joe's got more details than I do about it, but it's a great time to get out on the river, and um, it's uh, certainly a good deed for the whole community. All right, well, Joe, well, let's, uh, let's follow up on that. Tell us a little bit more about uh, the, uh, the cleanup going on at the Pearl. Yes, uh, I've been in communication with Abby Brahman. She's the uh, executive director of the uh, Pearl River Keepers. Mm-hmm. And she tells me there are 25 specific locations along the Pearl River where volunteers can uh, pick up trash. <laughs> this is a, a, definitely a labor of love. It's not, it, it's, uh, not glamorous work, but it's it's certainly worthwhile, and, and they're to be committed for doing it. You, they, uh, anyone interested in uh, volunteering for this should contact them f- first, uh, so they, they actually need to register with the uh, Pearl River Keepers. And they can go online at www.pearlriverkeeper.com and get all the necessary information. There's a press release that, that they put out. And also their flyer, very colorful flyer. They can get all the information they would need. Just remember the Pearl River, uh, it's about 500 miles long. It begins in Neshoba County near, near Nanawaya and flows south through uh, Jack, or between Jackson and, and uh, Rangan County, Hines County and Rangan County, then continues south to Purlington where it empties into the uh, Mississippi Sound. So there's... Plenty of locations from, you know, Neshoba County all the way to Hancock County for volunteers to choose from. They'd probably want to pick a location near where they live, I I would assume. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's grunt work or, if if you know what I mean, grungy work. Supposedly they would, I I mean, thinking they would need to wear old clothes, you know, and have gloves. And uh, I'm sure the folks at uh, the Riverkeeper can inform them about, uh, you know, bringing lunch along or drinking water. It could be hot. It may not be as hot as uh, we have been having, uh, considering it's cooled off a little bit. So, yeah, get, contact uh, the River Keepers through the website. Uh, I had a really nice email from Abby Brahman about, about this event, and uh, she was kind of excited that we were going to mention it on Creature Comforts. Yeah, and as I said, uh, as you said, that they want to know who their volunteers are, but I think it would be a great idea to contact first to, to register, but also to get an idea of what's required, because as you said, this is great work, but it's not its not a fun day in the park. It's, it's right. kind of grungy. Right. It's, uh, it's uh, grunt work. It could be laborious. You can imagine what they find in the river, everything from styrofoam cups to uh, – dilapidated ice chests through pieces of boats and, you know, heavy stuff, tires. I'm sure they'll find some tires. So, yeah, it's uh, it's, but it's very worthwhile and they're to be commended for doing it. It's a sad commentary that all this has to be picked up, but uh, it's it's good that they are willing to, to help clean up the river. The river's not just for us, for humans. Uh, it's also, there's some very interesting wildlife species that live there, some endangered species or threatened anyway, uh, 
the uh, Gulf Sturgeon occurs in the Pearl River, up as far as behind the museum in Jackson. The museum, by the way, you know, sits virtually on the river. It's mm-hmm. up on the bluff above the river. And there's uh, a little fish called a uh, speckled belly, a freckled belly, I'm sorry, freckled belly mad time, a type of little, of little catfish. There's the pearl darter. There's the uh, uh, ring sawback, a turtle. That's one you can actually see. I have seen it on trails behind me. If you approach it very slowly, you know, you can see it. Uh, see those basking on logs and whatnot. Or I have, at least in the past. And there's another turtle, the uh, pearl, uh, uh, I guess it's called the pearl sawback. Uh, recently uh, separated in, uh, from the uh, Pascagoula sawback. So, yeah, there's plenty of reasons for this to take place, and the people who do it are certainly to be commended. Yeah, I was uh, went to visit my brother in uh, Pensacola a couple of weeks ago, and the, the the sort of a sister organization, the Ocean Keepers, I think, were there. But there was a similar sort of thing mm-hmm. where you could see people were out collecting trash along the beach and that sort of thing. So kudos to these organizations that organize these things, and also a big thanks to people who volunteer their time to you know help preserve. Uh, what is a great uh, p- part of our natural resources here in Mississippi. So That's right. Uh, and it, I don't know if we actually mentioned this date. Um, I'll mention it again. It's day after tomorrow. It's, okay. it's this coming Saturday. And Livy mentioned how many tons have been collected over the years. I think it's about 75 tons of trash have been picked up in the Pearl River over the past five years. That's a lot, a lot of trash. Yep. So PearlRiverKeepers.com, if you're interested, uh, you can find out all the relevant information uh, by going there. And if you're interested, go ahead and sign up as well. So Libby, uh, what, uh, what are you seeing out there um, in Oregon these days? We had a fun day. Well, really, I guess several fun days. This week we've been um, on the Yakina River a lot, Uh, uh Yaquina River, I think is how they pronounce it, actually. But it's a, a beautiful river, and it uh, goes into the Pacific Ocean there at Newport and forms Newport Bay. And uh, salmon season has just recently started, and um, or is beginning to start, really, because you know there are several species. And so you can fish ocean side or the river sides or whatever. And Monday, uh, Paul caught... Um, a nice sized coho salmon, and we ate it and had a big party over that. And uh, so I've been going out with him since then. And generally, I guess the routine is to troll for the salmon and to put out our um, crab traps so that way we're always assured of getting a crab meal, if not a salmon. Yesterday, we didn't take the crab traps and went up the river, and we did not catch another fish, but it was a gorgeous day on the river, and um, I got to see loons. The loons are coming down from Alaska already. You know, we've talked about, I think we talked about last week, and I know you're going to talk a lot more about fall migration, and I'm seeing fall migration very obviously here, so... Uh, Pacific loons were what I saw yesterday, and I saw them in three different locations along um, the Yaquina River, and uh, it was really fun to see. Pacific loons I only see out here. We don't see those now. Common loons, people will start seeing them in the fall and winter in um, Mississippi, so we'll get good looks at them, which are they're beautiful. If you've never seen a loon in the wild, it's a, uh, it would be good to see them. You can see them on any of the reservoirs in Mississippi. Um, it, it'll be later when it has to get cooler weather before you'll see those. But I, I watched brown pelicans diving, 
and uh, cormorants and kingfishers and lots of western gulls and terns. But the big star yesterday were the loons. And um, the big star didn't show up, no uh, no salmon, but I'm hoping again for salmon. I don't know if we, we've probably never talked about uh, migrating fish before. I'm not sure that would be a good one to talk about a little. And uh, our sturgeon in Mississippi migrate in the river, and, you know, they spend much of their time in the Gulf, and then they come up the river to... Uh, their ancestral breeding grounds to breed, but sturgeon are really long-lived fish. They, you know, live as long as humans, and they, um, they, so they're they don't necessarily migrate every year, and they live through their migration. And I guess the the sad thing out here about salmon is that they don't live past. They're kind of like our fireflies. Once they lay those eggs, they're done. So it's the end of their life. The the salmon. About three-year-olds, I think, for the cohos, and um, I don't know as much about salmon as I want to know. I'll learn more about them as we go along, but once they migrate and come back, they do return to the waters close to where they were born, if not to the exact spot, but uh, they die at that point. Um, a lot of, of the salmon fishery, of course, is in a colder climate, and it's a wonderful boost for those ecosystems when you know, it's sort of a sacrificial kind of a, a thing, I think, in Indian lore that the salmon comes in just at the beginning of winter. You know, it's, it's already going to start cooling off here, so it'll be getting cold soon. And the, uh, the bears need to hibernate, but they need a big load of nutrition before they hibernate, and there are the salmon ready for them. Uh, the people need to get ready for the winter, so they've got the salmon coming in in the fall. It's just the perfect timing. The birds, everything. Uh, it, as you see people begin to fish, more and more of these critters will come anticipating that when they'll be bycatch, you know, they'll be um, when they clean the fish or when you do anything with your fish, there's always something. So it's exciting for the animals as well. All right, great. We always like to hear the what's going on uh, while Libby's visiting a family in the Pacific Northwest out in Oregon, so we appreciate that. So we've got a caller on the line, an early caller, and it's uh, Walker who joins us from Carroll County. Good morning, Walker. You're on the air with us. What do you have for us today? Good morning. Uh, I have captured a strange creature. It walks like an ant across a gravel driveway here in McCarley, uh, but it looks like a small and brightly red-colored wasp. Now, I captured it, and that was about a week and a half ago. I'm ashamed to have kept it so long. It's lost a bit of its color, but I can take a photograph and send it if you wish. Yeah, please do. Send the fo- if you could send a photograph. Uh, does, the, does the insect have wings? doesn't appear to. It, uh, it, uh, if they are, they're very close and folded. I, I, I yeah, I don't think. I think what you've got there, this is sort of a guess without seeing it and knowing more details, but I think it's sometimes called a cow killer. It's a velvet ant, but it's actually a wasp, as you suggested. It's a flightless wasp. The male, that's the female. The males actually have wings. Uh, but that's what it sounds like. Very, it was very colorful when you first found it, right? Yes, yeah. About a week and a half ago, and it's faded. I've had honey and peanut butter and water, so it hadn't been starving. Well, they, eat, they feed on caterpillars, and they're actually, you know, most wasps are... Uh, Meat 
Yeah. Meat eaters, yeah. They're meat yeah. eaters. Are they're predators of, of other insects? They actually are beneficial. They could eat. They do eat some of the harmful caterpillars. You know, caterpillars that would attack our vegetables or our ornamental ornamental plants. But I, I would really like to see a photograph if you could send it. And there's no tree that has an infestation of all these webs of uh, caterpillars. If I could throw this ant up there, I hope she would. No, no, be careful handling it. The the sting. I've been stung by one of those. If we're talking about the same insect, Ooh. and it is extremely painful. It feels like a hot nail being stuck in your finger or wherever you're stung. Uh, so, put it back on the ground. Actually, they, that's what they find their prey. By crawling around on the ground or even up a wall, I saw one on on my front wall the other day, outside wall, not an inside wall. Uh, I wouldn't throw it into the web. You're talking about fall web worms, probably. I, so, uh, Walker, if you would uh, snap a picture of it and send it to animals uh, at mpbonline.org, and then we'll see if we can't uh, identify it. But uh, sounds like Joe might be on the on the right track of of what it is that you found. Okay, I'm a Luddite. I don't have access to a computer. I do have it on a cell phone camera. If there's a cell phone number you can give me off here that I can send it to, that's the way I can do it. In other words, you would text it to us. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah right. Uh, like I say, right. All right. Um, Google it. Okay, yeah. The, the put, let's, uh, we'll put you back on hold, and we'll, we'll get that worked out then. Thanks for uh, the Thank call. You. Libby, you had a thought? Yeah, I was just going to say, if Walker, if you'll put it at the base of the tree where you've got that infestation, there, you know, just as the bark starts on the ground, that's a really good place to put it back, and it's there's a good chance it'll go up that tree and and find the webworms. Right. It won't, it'll it'll that'll give it a good start. It's always good to put something kind of at the base of a tree when it's been um, set off course, so to speak so that it's not kind of right out in the middle of everything. It gives it a chance to sort of recalibrate and um, decide what it's going to do. We're, you know, it's kind of, we joke about it being kind of like an alien picking you up, because can you imagine how you would feel if <laughs> something uh, 200 times larger than you picked you up for a little while and gave you a treat, whether or not you liked it or not, and um so it's it's a good thing to let them back into their habitat um, carefully, and at the base of a tree is always a little bit of a protected spot. That's right, and possibly one of those webworms could fall. You know, if accidents happen. One could drop on the ground, and that uh, velvet ant would find it in no time. All right, uh, Walker. Thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Visiting today with our friend biologist Joe McGee. So, good morning, Joe. Always good to have you in studio with us. Uh, what sort of birds will people be seeing in and out and about uh, this time of year? You know, actually, fall migration for some of our birds begins in mid-July. It's hard to believe, but time flies. And the birds you would see at that time of the year, when it's still really hot, are the sandpipers. The, they're sometimes called uh, the wind birds because they fly such en- enormous distances. So if if any of our listeners have access to a pond, the pond is probably drying up considering how hot and dry it's been lately. There are probably exposed mudflats, and that's what the sandpipers really like. They walk around on the mudflats looking for small invertebrates to eat, and some of them even wade into the shallow water. So that would be uh, uh, one of the things to look for. 
the western part of the, the delta of Mississippi, the western part of the state, is really a hot spot now for bird watchers looking for shorebirds. They post their sightings on uh, uh, e, uh, Miss Bird or on eBird uh, if you want to see some of the things they're seeing. So that's one thing you can look for, the shorebirds, the, the various sandpipers. Um, so the birds that are migrating through, that are just passing through, how long typically do they stay before they head off out on the rest of their journey? The fall migration seems to be a little more uh, slower paced. It's slower paced than uh, it is in the spring. In the spring, there's there's this urgency to get to the breeding grounds and and breed and lay their eggs in you and raise their young. It's slower in the fall. Sometimes I have warblers show up in my yard. And they hang around for three or four days, and I know it's the same ones because, say, a tail feather is missing or askew. And I, I can actually recognize individual birds. And there are three species that I see most often uh, in the fall. And this will continue until mid to the third week of October. One is yellow warblers. That's one I see. Another one is black-throated green warblers. And I know they've come a long way. They breed up in Canada and the northern states. And then the American red start. Those American red starts breed in Mississippi, but I think some of the ones I see in the yard are from elsewhere. I'm, I'm pretty sure they are. And they hang around for three or four days, and then suddenly I realize, or one day I get up and I look for them, and, and they're no longer present. They've gone. All right. Uh, this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It looks like we got a couple of callers on the line, so we'll start again on the phone lines in Osaka. It's our friend Kathleen on the line. Good morning, Kathleen. What do you have for us today? Well, I've got a follow-up report that Libby asked me to keep an eye on last year when I didn't quite get a good picture, uh, view of this bird. Now, it came back not 20 feet from where it was last year, and it was uh, dark yellow, kind of on the bright side. It had a yellow beak, and around the eyes, the hood looked like black, and the tummy was yellow. And the back and the tail could have been a charcoal, dark charcoal blue or uh, black. And it, went, it was calling its buddies on the outlying field, and they were caught what they do a callback. So uh, I figured I'm going to be a little scout girl and call back and get a report. I don't know what it is. Sounds like a warbler, maybe. What, what's what's this, and what do you think, Libby? What's the, we need to know the size of this bird. Yeah, the size is real important here. Yeah. What, oh my God! Now it, you're asking for a ruler. Let me ask what you. Is, let me ask you something. Let me ask you something, Kathleen. Is it smaller than a mockingbird? What do you think? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would okay. think so. Is it smaller than a bluebird, eastern bluebird? Do you know? I'm a newbie about this. Yeah, so that's f- that's fine. That's fine. Uh, and w- w- tell me this: does it does it stay low, like near the ground, like hanging around in bushes and grass near the ground? Yeah, it's about a foot and a half off the ground. Okay, kind of hang on sideways, and uh, it was looking around, but it knows I have that water trough there. Uh huh. Uh huh. trough, and he would. Kind of jump to the edge of it, splash around, do what he had to do, and then come back to his little stand. And he was talking. You could hear the callback going on back and forth. I said, "My, this is very interesting." You, 
I don't want to put words in your mouth. When I'm trying to find out what somebody has seen, I try to avoid, you know, putting words in your mouth. Tell me again what color the breast is, the underparts. Bright? Did you say bright yellow? It was uh, bright yellow, but it was on uh, a dark yellow, but it's still very uh, colorful. Mm-hmm. Very colorful. And the back I is, is more it. like an olive color, maybe? No, I didn't, I didn't see the olive. It looked from where I was standing. I was about 25 feet away. Uh, I'm pretty good about color. It could have been a dark charcoal blue or black or gray. It was one of those tonal things, but it was on the dark side. And right above its little beak, it had a definite little black uh, look like you put makeup on or she put makeup on. <laughs> Did you notice? Can you describe the face of that bird? The, the, you know, the area around the eye, say? Um. Uh, I would say dark, uh-huh. and then it into a yellow behind that, and then went into the uh, charcoal where it's dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a possibility this, what you're seeing is a Kentucky warbler. They stay low. Uh, a lot of what you have described it sounds like a Kentucky warbler, but I'm not positive. Do you have a field guide, uh, to bird field guide? No, no, not yet, but it looks like I'm going to have to get one. Yeah, you got to shell out and get one. But you can also, uh, you can go online, look up Kentucky, go to uh, All About Birds, you know, the Cornell website, and look up uh, uh, Kentucky Warbler. It may not be a Kentucky Warbler. There's another possibility there's to check out, and that's a hooded warbler, a male hooded warbler. But uh, I do believe, you're, since it's bright yellow on the underparts, that sure sounds like one of the warblers to me. And it's not one that stays high in the trees, apparently. Of course, this one is seeking water, as you as you said. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm better off with books than I am at the internet. Yeah. Okay. I can, I, I can do something. I can, <laughs> sympath- I can sympathize with that. Uh, but I think you're seeing either a Kentucky warbler or a hooded warbler, and I'm I'm probably overlooking something. But though both of those stay low, they even walk on the ground sometimes. Or, well, he wasn't afraid of me at all. Yeah. He just did, you know, uh, I didn't approach him or her, and uh, he stayed there for 20, 30 minutes from the end of the water and back. Did you move really slowly or maybe not move at all? Very slowly. Yeah. And sometimes at all, I paused. I wasn't ready to upset the, you know, yeah, the current yeah, situation. Yeah. yeah, if you don't... If you don't uh, Sudden movements frighten, will frighten an insect or a butterfly, you know. So slow, steady movements are the way to observe wildlife. So I, then they accept you. I think that bird is accepting you. And uh, anyway, it's a good observation, whatever it is. All right, Kathleen, okay. though, you've got your homework assignment. We need you to go to your public library if need be, find that bird guide, and see if you can help us figure out what it is you're seeing. I'll give you a report next year. All right. <laughs> Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And our guest for the hour is biologist Joe McGee. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. And if you miss any of today's show, you can always subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app on your smartphone. Or better still, download the MPB Public Media app. Then you can hear all of the local MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. You can email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. So I've got a caller on the line, but first, Joe, I wanted to do a quick follow-up, and that is we mentioned uh, field guides or bird guides with uh, Kathleen. 
if someone is not familiar with how they work, how, how do they work? How do you figure out what bird you're seeing with the use of the field guide? And I have to bring one with me. This is a, a recent one, the Sibley field guide. Uh, you try to, okay, is it a water bird? Put it in a big category first. In the front of most field guides, and I'm sure this one has it, will have the water birds together, the birds of prey, you know, the hawks together, the owls together, hummingbirds. and So f- figure out which category it goes in first and then try to work from there. Kathleen described a small bird. I, I think it was a I'm pretty sure it was small, and everything she said about it to me suggested warblers. So, you know, I would go to the warbler section of the field guide. Go from from the general group to the specific later. And sometimes it's very, especially this time of year, it's difficult to figure out exactly what species it is because the birds are not in their breeding plumage or their their so-called alternate plumage this time of year. Uh, does that make sense? Uh, yeah, and, and so the, the closer you get, you see pictures, and you say, okay, it looks like this one, and then right. it's kind of a narrowing down procedure. It's a narrowing down procedure, exactly. And also, you would want to learn the birds in your yard that you see every, you know, the permanent residents, the Carolina wrens, the cardinals, the eastern bluebirds, those are mockingbirds, those are permanent residents. So you could eliminate those, or either if it, that's what it is, you know, you identify it right away. Uh, versus the ones that just come through once a year. I, this morning, before I came here to the studio, I checked uh, my email, see if I had any emails, and there was one from Miss Bird, and some folks up at, I think, Columbus, somewhere in Lowndes County, I believe it was, had seen a bird I haven't seen in years. It was, it's called a golden-winged warbler. And they had two photographs, of, and excellent photographs. Birds are hard to photograph. I mean, even a... You know, a bird that sits out in the open for you, it's difficult to get a good photograph. The warblers are among the most difficult to photograph. They don't stay still. They're moving in and out of the foliage and everything. These folks, and I can't remember who it was, had photographed, had two photographs posted of this golden-winged warbler. No doubt that's what they saw. Made me want to get out and look for one. <laughs> and it also reminded me we are well into fall migration. That's one that does not show up in July ordinarily. You wouldn't expect to see a golden wing warbler in july we're into mid-september hard to believe all right got two calls on the line uh, so dr major heads up in a minute we'll get you a pet question but first let's go to brandon jan has called in today good morning jan go ahead good morning the uh, cardinals that are coming to my feeder in the last few weeks and i saw one this morning I, it is they are so scruffy looking like they're in bad shape maybe and I don't know if they're fledglings that haven't quite decided if they're going to be a male or a female. I mean, they're really scruffy looking. Um, what What's going on? I don't think it's anything to worry about. I'm seeing some of the same things in my yard. Though they are molting, birds molt right. They have their feathers are exposed to a lot, the wind, the weather, and so birds molt. And I suspect that those cardinals in your yard are just molting, growing new feathers. I hope that's what it is. I hope it's not. If it's some kind of avian disease, you'll have to talk to Dr. Major. Uh, I don't think it's anything to worry about. And you'll be surprised if it's, if it's just their, you know, their molt. In just a few days or a couple of weeks maybe, they'll all have their bright, shiny new, new plumage. The males will be bright, bright red. The females will be that more subdued, you know, pinkish-brown color. Does that, does that sound... Right to you? <laughs> that, that was my guess. Yeah. How late in the season do they actually nest? Because we see babies and 
fledglings. Cardinals, Cardinals will nest two times and even sometimes three times. I would be a little surprised. This year, was, the weather was so rough, you know, the, the heat know. and everything. Uh, but, but it's not unusual for them to nest twice, and they can be feeding their young well into August for that second nesting. Very good. Thank you. All right. Okay. Jan, thanks for calling in this morning, staying on the phone lines. We go next to Bill in Jackson, who has a pet question. Bill, go ahead. You're on the air with us. Dr. Major, we are trying, yes. trap, we are trying to trap some feral cats in our neighborhood in order to have them spayed and neutered and vaccinated. Is there some sedative, I mean, like Benadryl or something that could be put in a cat's food just to make them calm enough to be captured and put in the cage to make the trip to the vet's office? Right. Okay, several things. One, be very careful because they can inflict some pretty good wounds. Uh, uh-huh. Do you have a one of the live traps, like I have a heart trap? Yes, that's what we have. Okay, yeah. You know, there's some things you could do. Benadryl possibly would help. Uh, gabapentin, uh, if given uh, in food can help some of these cats be a little bit calmer. So okay. you might talk to your vet and, and get some gabapentin and, and try that. But I'm okay. uh, a little reluctant to put anything stronger than that because some other animal might get it or it could be too you know, too too strong for, for the cat. Right. So right. I'd say that, some that with, Right. Okay. I don't think you All would right. hurt them. Does that require that. a prescription? Uh, you'd have to get it from your vet, I would say. From the vet. It's not, okay. it's not, it's right. not over the counter, okay? Okay, great. Thank you very much. Good luck with that, and hope it works All well. All right. Take care. Uh, bye-bye. All right, Bill, thanks. And yeah, also check with your uh, vet about the, how much, because as Dr. Major said, you don't want to give uh, too much of, of, the, of the whatever you're doing to settle the cats down. So thanks, Bill. We appreciate your call. We're going to stay on the phone lines. Next, off to Louisiana we go. Dwayne has called in today. It's your turn, Dwayne, so go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, I just have to tune in. I heard you guys talking about the field guides for identifying birds and something that I found very handy um, because I'm usually not able to spot the sneaky little suckers. Um, A lot of times there's an app uh, that you can download to your phone, and if you hear a bird song and you press record, it'll record the bird song and identify the bird from that. And uh, that might be helpful for you listeners don't have a field guide handy all the time. Is that the Merlin uh, app? Uh, Merlin is one of them. Yeah, from from Cornell. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a while back, a nephew of mine had discovered that, and he had recorded uh, a bird. He wasn't, he had no idea what it was. He recorded it, and he had identified it correctly for him as, as an eastern wood peewee. Hmm. I, I don't have any experience okay. with that, uh, but uh, I know a lot of people are using it. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I use Merlin a lot, and um, it doesn't need to be the sole way you identify a bird because it— Merlin is guessing to some extent, you know, yeah, it's, right. it's an, well, sure, sure. it's an AI application really, but, um, it really does help a lot. Yes. In yes. fact, we have better, the older we get, the, the, the more often we now identify by sound. Yeah. One of the problems with that would be, of course, that, that most of the, our songbirds don't sing this time of year. They yeah. do have the chip notes mm-hmm. and a few, there's one called a white-eyed vireo and it sings on my fall migration that it would help with that one. But many of our birds do not sing this time of year. 
that's why yeah merlin helps you more in the spring and summer than it does in the fall and even even in the spring if there's if it's something that's migrating in but is not going to stay it's not a a breeder here then um they tend to not sing so it's very hard to tell then yeah i haven't but my nephew swears by it now that he discovered that oftentimes i'll hear a bird song before i'll see a bird and i'll just uh you know, it kind of gives you an idea what to look out for. Yeah. When we do bird bird surveys, breeding bird surveys, we rely on the songs of the birds. They're done during the breeding season. You would never get through if you had to look at each, if you had to find each one visually. (laughs) So, yeah, Yeah, identifying birds by sound is very important. All right, Dwayne, thanks for the call. Good suggestion there. I'm like you. I hear birds much better than I see them, and then you realize that's probably – intentional on them to maybe a little bit of camouflage or whatever uh, but thanks for that uh, that tip always a another app for our smartphones that is useful and helps us when we're out in nature and looks like we got a couple more calls to get to so let's go to memphis this time and say good morning to deborah you're on the air with us deborah your turn go ahead oh good morning um i had a question um i had birds just some simple bird feeders out a few seeds in my house, and uh, mainly just sunflower seeds. I I spotted a couple of mice sitting in it a couple of times, and also I know there are rats in our yard or you know this area. So I took the the feeders down. But is there anything I can do? Because I would like to feed the birds, but I don't want to attract the rodent feeders. Uh, nothing in this life is absolute. I uh, live-trapped a mouse in my house this week. It was getting into my crackers. It's <laughs> <laughs> awful. But it, 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 one of the side effects of feeding the birds is you will attract rodents. But what you need, and you probably don't want this, what you need are some gray rat snakes around. To, they will dispatch those some of those mice. It's a tough thing to to deal with. Uh yeah. You're you're going to attract both. It's food for birds and it's food for for rodents, right? Uh, I sort of don't. Less cover for the mice can be helpful. Fewer places for them to hide. Uh, Libby, do you have any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I agree with Joe. Really, what he's saying is about the right thing to do. Yeah. Uh, less cover as for for mice. You, I don't think you'll ever totally eliminate the problem. Do you like cats? Do you have cats? Um, we have a dog. A, a dog will go for mice. A, a cat in your house. I have two cats in my house, and they will catch them. They they will and have caught mice before. But I have so much junk in my house that they can't, sometimes they can't find the mice. But it, it's a tough it's a tough thing uh, to deal with. What is you know, I had the feeders right by my house, and I don't have a very big yard, maybe 40 or 50 feet deep in the back. Uh-huh. Would it be safer to feed them at the back of the yard? I just don't want them in my house. You, you know, I do have one idea in that I've known several people that talk about bringing their feeders in every night. Just put them in a plastic bag and bring them in, and that leaves a lot less food up there. There'll still be some things on the ground, 
But you could do that. That's a good idea. On occasion, I have do- I'm have. i not doing it right now. In fact, I've cut way back on feeding the birds right now. I've had a problem with squirrels, and I'm hoping the squirrels will go elsewhere. But, yeah, that's a good idea. Okay. All right. Because okay. the mice are primarily eating at night, probably, aren't they? Right, right. Yeah, they're more active okay. after dark, the, the mice are. All right, Deborah, thanks for the call. Hope that uh, was a suggestion might work, help keep those mice at bay. Uh, let's stay on the phone lines. Next, we're off to Benton County. Bobby has called in today. What do you have for us today, Bobby? Yes, uh, I'm almost 90 years old, spent most of my life around Hollow Springs National Forest in Benton County. And uh, three or four months ago, I was sitting in the old courthouse at Ashland, and I noticed outside uh, feeding on a, a maple tree was a... Uh, I think it was a Ivy Bill uh, woodpecker, and we call them old Indian hens, and they are still around here. And uh, I think it was really a, a Ivy Bill woodpecker, and it's about we're about ten or twelve miles uh, from a big swamp between Highway seventy two and Highway seven <coughs> in uh, Michigan City, and I believe that's where he was coming from. And <coughs> I grabbed my phone to photograph him and people moved and scared him off and I didn't see him again. But I was just curious if uh, anyone, uh, I keep seeing online or, or reading about, uh, they still think there's maybe some of those ideal woodpeckers in, in Mississippi and Louisiana. And uh, any comment on that, what that it might have been? Well, uh, it could have... I need a photograph. We really need I to feel do. sure it's a Well, That's what I was going to say. Yeah. I mean, I'm always hopeful that, you know, that uh, ivory bill woodpeckers are not extinct, but I'm afraid they are. I mean, we have really looked for them. And, but it's true their habitat was swampy. But the habitat for the uh, pileated or pileated woodpeckers also can be swampy. I think that's probably what you saw. Did the bird have very much white on it? Did you notice much white? Yeah, quite a bit. Quite quite a bit of white on him. <laughs> mm. When it was perched. Yeah, and he flew in a uh, like a porpoise up and down real close to the ground. Well, all, all woodpeckers, most, I, I think all of our woodpeckers do that. They tend to have this yeah. un- undulating flight. Uh, right. I, I, I'm not going to say one way or the other. My feeling is, and I hate to say this, but I, I'm afraid ivory bill woodpeckers are extinct. I, I really regret that, but I'm afraid that's the case. And probably what you saw was a, a pileated or a pileated woodpecker. They're were, they were a little bit smaller than the ivory bills were. But not much, yeah. It's not. They're a huge bird. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't see any way in the world it was an ivory bill. You know, I, I just feel like you have to go by the data. And- yeah. People are looking in every community, and I know they've looked all over. You know, people look all over Mississippi for them, and but we see, we do see pileated often, and that, that's exactly a place that you would expect to see a pileated. Yeah, I had a pair in my yard yesterday of, of the pileated. All right, uh, Bobby, thanks for your call. We've got about a minute and a half left. Bobby in Starkville is on the line as well. Bobby, uh, running out of time, but what do you have for us? I was wondering about the meadowlark. I don't see them anymore. Uh, has yes, the, have the meadows grown up where you live? Or the past? It's a bird of open fields and pastures and meadows, uh, not a woodland bird. I see a few, not as many. When I was growing up, I used to encounter their nests. They nest on the ground uh, in pastures where cows were. The cows are in, and the meadowlarks get along fine. 
Uh, but their numbers are down. Do you think they have habitat where you are, the open pastures? I think, I think they I think they should. Now, we do have um, a few uh, coyotes, and uh, I do see a bobcat. And uh, But I don't see any at all, any anywhere I go in pastures. Yeah. Uh, they were per- they're one that will perch on, you know, utility lines, you know, power line, telephone lines out in the open. If you can learn to recognize them when they're perched like that, that's a good way to census for, for meadowlarks. Uh, but their grassland birds, are de- their numbers are down all over the country. All right, Bobby, thanks for the call. We are out of time for this week. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, with funding provided in part by listeners like you. To hear today's show or previous show, you can visit creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Media app. Our show was produced by Abram Nanny, and a call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Joe McGee, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned because up next it's AutoCorrect. Then we'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.